0: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week's episode is going to be a best of Power Hour, and there are two reasons for this. One is that I am finishing the latest manuscript draft of my book, Fossil Future, and this is a particularly important uh, draft. It's one of the last ones, and we're set for a release date of February 22nd, 2022, so 2 22 It's been a long time getting here, but we're really getting close, but I, I've been I don't want to talk about how many hours I've been working, but it's been uh, a lot, so trying to save time wherever I can since I'm delivering this manuscript on August 4th. So that's one reason why I'm not having a new episode. Uh, but the other is, uh, this is a very special episode for a couple reasons that I'm doing a best of for. And it is the first ever episode of Power Hour and the guest is Robert Bryce. I was reminded of this episode because last week Robert interviewed me for his podcast, The Power Hungry Podcast, which is an up up and coming podcast. And I was reminiscing about this and that podcast comes out uh, next week. So I believe that is August. uh, I think it comes out on Tuesday. So August 3rd. And I think it's, I think we recorded a great podcast. I really enjoyed it. I think we covered a lot of interesting stuff and I thought, I thought listeners would enjoy seeing these together, seeing how we were thinking about issues and talking about issues back over 10 years ago now, and then how we're doing that today. And I think both of us have evolved. Uh, you know, me, there's just been so much that i uh, just speaking for myself, just so much that I've learned. And I feel like so much of the philosophical Uh, framework for thinking about energy. I'm much clearer on myself, much more able to articulate. And I think Robert is actually much more interested in those issues as well. So I thought I'm going to highly recommend checking out his Power Hungry podcast in that episode in particular. Uh, But I thought you might enjoy hearing this original Power Hour. If you have any thoughts on what's different or you know what that episode was like and how that compares to now i'd be really interested so feel free to email me at alex at alexepstein.com with any comments all right without further ado enjoy the first ever episode of power hour from back in early 2011. power hour power hour coal wind power nuclear power
1: natural gas solar power ethanol oil power hour the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues no sound bites no talking points no vagueness just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity here's your host alex epstein resident fellow at the ayn rand center for individual rights hi and welcome to power hour i'm your host alex epstein since this is our first episode let me introduce you to the basic concept of the show Power Hour is a monthly hour-long show in which I bring in today's top energy thinkers to discuss today's top energy issues. Too much of what we hear about important energy issues today is shallow talking points or glib sound bites, expressions like, let's go green, or drill, baby, drill. The purpose of Power Hour is to provide a new, deeper level of energy discussion to get to the bottom of today's most important controversies in energy. And there are a lot of these controversies to discuss fossil fuels, solar and wind power, nuclear power, offshore drilling, global warming, electric cars, peak oil, the green movement, and many more. And we'll be discussing all of these in upcoming episodes. Now on today's Power Hour, we're going to discuss two of the most popular ideas we hear about energy today. One is the idea that we should be energy independent. The other is the idea that we should get our power from so-called green energy. Our guest today is Robert Bryce, who is a leading thinker on both of these issues. Bryce has argued in his books and articles that both the campaign for energy independence and the campaign for green energy are irrational and economically destructive. He argues that neither policy can provide the massive amounts of practical power that our society and every society needs. We'll discuss this and much more coming up next in this month's interview. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. All right, we're here with Robert Bryce, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a leading energy commentator and author of two of the most important books about energy in the last several years. The first is Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence, and the second is Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuels of the Future. Robert, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Alex. In your new book, Power Hungry, you stress the importance about thinking of energy issues, not just in terms of how much energy we have, but how much power we have. You write, we don't give a damn about energy. What what we really want is power. Could you elaborate on this?
2: Sure. Before I do that, let me just set the table here, because this is a critical part, or should be rather, a critical part of our overall discussions. And the two terms, energy and power, are frequently interchanged, and uh, they're not the same thing, not at all. Uh, energy is a measure. Uh, it is a quantity. Uh, a, a barrel of, of oil is energy. Uh, a barrel of oil per day is power. Energy is an amount, and power is a rate. By definition, power is uh, one watt per second. It is a, or rather, one joule per second. Um, uh, one watt is a measure of power, one joule is a measure of energy. Um, So when I say we don't give a damn about energy, what we want is power, Um, I think the best way to illustrate that is is think about when you go to a service station. Uh, Yes, we pump gasoline or diesel fuel or ethanol or whatever it is into our tanks. We're used to doing that. We know it's an oil product, or in the case of, of ethanol, it's a corn product. But... We'd gladly, or at least I would, gladly put cupcakes or sawdust or marbles or, uh, or uh, Twinkies into the, into the fuel tank if I thought that when I get in the car and press the accelerator, I would have enough power to drive from my house to uh, across town or to the grocery store. What we're after is power. We don't care when we flip the light switch. I don't care whether the electricity is being produced from coal or natural gas or, or oil or nuclear fission or, or wind or solar. I care that the power comes on. What we're after is power. Our, the, the, the entire history of, of humans, really, and particularly in the Industrial Revolution and through, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, has been the effort to find out how we can turn energy whether it's from the sun or in the form of coal or oil or natural gas or whatever, how we can turn energy into more effective power. And that's lighting power, motive power, computing power, whatever it is. We are after power, not energy. Energy to us is of, is, is of little importance.
1: Uh, Related to that, one of the themes that's that's stressed in the book is the connection between power and human life. And you you talk about this both in America, where we have all these massive server farms and all sorts of other power-hungry devices, but also in the undeveloped world. Uh, What are some examples of how more power means a better standard of living?
2: Well, energy availability generally means power availability. Generally, if you're using more energy, you're turning it into effective power. But one of the more remarkable sets of numbers that I came across in doing the research for Power Hungry was this one: the entire continent of Africa has approximately a billion people. The entire continent of Africa, though, only uses about as as much electricity as Canada, a country of about thirty three million people. So, uh, people refer to Africa as the dark continent. Well, it is the dark continent. What is the dark continent? Because it's dark. And, and, and why, is, why is Africa languishing behind the rest of the world? They don't have enough electric power. That is the key commodity in Africa. It's the key commodity in industrial economies around the world. So the, the availability of, or, or as I say in speeches and so on, the the, the essentiality of electricity to modernity is incontrovertible. The countries that can provide cheap, abundant, reliable electricity to their citizens can grow and prosper, and
1: those that can't, can't. Uh, I also remember in the book you had an interesting case of oil, and I believe it was liquid petroleum gas used in the third world to great benefit. Uh, Could you talk about that? Um,
2: Sure, I can. And and I guess if I can, just jump back to that issue of, of of, of power availability alex, and to me it 's one of the cr- the key points and and, and, it, and it, 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 the importance is, uh, of this goes beyond just electricity and discussions of economics, but rather to me it 's indicative of or rather it 's directly germane to the issue of co two and, and carbon dioxide limits and carbon taxes, et etc. When you have a situation such as I just described in Africa, where you have so few uh, people in, in, on the continent have access to cheap, abundant, reliable electricity, the concern among those countries, the concerns among those tens of millions, hundreds of millions of consumers, is not climate change. It's not carbon dioxide. It's not the IPCC or Copenhagen or Cancun or any of these other uh, High profile discussions about carbon dioxide limits or whatever. It's about their ability to have power to effectively improve their lives. So, it, to me, it's one of the great disconnects in our discussion about uh, climate change and global warming and carbon dioxide and everything else is this assumption that, oh, well, we can easily limit carbon dioxide emissions um, and we should do it now. Well, It's easy to talk about, but it's extraordinarily difficult to do simply because there are so many people around the world who are continuing to live in dire energy poverty. And unless or until they come out of dire energy poverty, their concerns about uh, climate and CO2 and these other issues is a distant,
1: distant, distant concern. Sure. you know one of the one of the one of the things uh, I appreciated in the book and one of the reasons I wanted to start off by talking about power because we're going to move on to discuss later some of your the things you're known for which uh, are energy independence and the idea of green energy but people often take for granted that oh yeah we have plenty of power there's plenty of power and yet in power theory, what you stress and and I see this all the time in my own research is that the world is severely underpowered in so many ways and that even we in America would benefit from Lots, lots more power. Let alone the people in the world, like in Africa, where you're talking about a tiny, tiny amount of power relative to a billion people. Well, and I think that that's a key
2: point, Alex, and that that it, what, and I've thought about this a lot since my book came out, and that is that, as I mentioned earlier, the quest of humans has always been to increase power availability, and whether that's lighting power or cooking, heating power in the kitchen. Um, or computing power, or video power. I, mean, I, I use the term engines kind of broadly to describe this process of converting energy into useful power, whatever, whatever type it is, motive power, lighting power, etc. But that, is the, that has been the, 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 the progress of humans throughout time, is to increase that availability of power. And, and we have to continue that, and it, it is in our interest to continue that, that quest for more power density, because therein is our ability to improve living standards. Uh, imagine where we would be in the United States if the only tilling uh, power we had was still oxen or, or, or draft horses. Uh, imagine the number of people who would still be living on in 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 poverty on rural farms, trying to eke out a living. Our ability to harness diesel diesel fuel and the diesel engine and create large uh, uh, tractors to till the earth has led to incredible productivity gains um, uh, on the farm. But without that increase in mechanical power then we would never have been able to achieve this incredible increase in our, our power to feed people. So um, it, 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 these, these issues of power and energy are, 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 are incredibly important, but they're, they're discarded and lost in, in, a, in, a, in our, our the, the really poor and, and cheapened vocabulary when it comes to these issues. And if we're going to make any progress, we have to improve our vocabulary in the discussion.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's very, it's kind of a uh, a um, common and, and well-known tendency, but still very much a tendency among people, at least in the modern age, to completely take for granted how amazing the world we live in is. And so much of everything that's amazing in one way or another is underlain by enormous, enormous amounts of power doing work for us. Because if, if power or the rate at which we can do work. The more power we have, the more work that gets done. And that's why I get to speed to work in this magic automobile, which someone 300 years ago would think uh, was beyond his wildest
0: dreams.
2: Well, it, exactly. And, and imagine what uh, it, it's why electricity is so important. That ability to, as, as several writers have talked about it, and, and Matt Ridley does so in his book, uh, The Rational Optimist, but that. the the ability to harness hydrocarbons and to put them to work for us. And and, and you think about the electric socket, and what you have there is the potential then to... Uh, as as uh, as uh, as Ridley talks about as a as a multiplier uh, or to amplify, they amplify our work. But effectively, out of the electric socket, if you're a carpenter, your ability then to multiply, amplify your own individual work using an electric saw, using an electric drill, using uh, an uh, electric router, uh, uh, any number of a planer all of those things that otherwise would have to be done by hand, you're effectively the effective horsepower that a carpenter can harness by just plugging in. Is, is remarkable and i have thought about it several times if you just when you when you watch tradesmen at work um, if they're out in some rural area or someplace far from the from the grid what do they have with them they have an electric generator out there to produce electricity from gasoline because they want the electric powers ability to amplify their handwork um and they will pay practically any price to get it
1: yeah. so speaking of of power uh, another another big point in the book is this idea that there are certain standards by which we can judge certain Uh, different sources of power, because in our energy debate we hear about a million different sources of power, and of course everyone from Al Gore on down claims that he has the best source of power, but in your book you offer, I guess we could call it a set of guidelines, which you call the four imperatives, which help us judge which sources of power are practical and which aren't. So what are the four imperatives, and why are they so critical? Uh, The
2: four imperatives, uh, thank you for that little commercial. (laughs) Power density, energy density, cost and scale. The reason we have the the, the sources that we use now, particularly hydrocarbons producing 9 out of 10 units of energy, 9 out of 10 units of power that we consume, come from hydrocarbons, well, why? The reason is that they satisfy the four imperatives. They have high power density, they have high energy density, and they can satisfy our needs from a cost and scale standpoint. Now, let me just, uh, we can talk for many hours on, on the four, but let me start from the last one, which is scale. Um, we've heard and repeatedly. Oh, well, we need to quit using hydrocarbons for whatever reason. Coal is dirty. Oh, natural gas, hydrofracking is terrible. Or
0: oil, well,
2: peak oil, we're going to run out. Or oil causes terrorism. We've heard that over and over and over again from the, the people on the extreme right. Um, and therefore, we need to quit using oil. Okay, fine. On an average day, the 6.7 billion people on the planet consume uh, in commercial energy about 226 million barrels of oil equivalent. That's everyone, and it's from every, every source. Nuclear, hydro, coal, oil, natural gas, solar, wind, everything. The total energy consumption on the planet per day is about 226 million barrels of oil equivalent. Well, that's about 27 Saudi Arabia's worth of primary energy. Saudis produce about 8 million, 8.1 million barrels of oil per day, have since for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. So if we we want to just uh, put it in Saudi terms, in Saudi Arabia's, it's 27 Saudi Arabia's. Well, of that 226 million barrels per day, we get about 200 million barrels per day from hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and natural gas. So if we want to find something else, uh, whatever it is, to replace that 200 million barrels of oil equivalent per day, we need 23.5 Saudi Arabia's that's a that's a, a tremendous amount of energy particularly when you consider the investments that the Saudis have made over the past 50 60 years to get their oil production up to the level that it is now so it, it, the uh, I, I can talk about power density and energy density of course but the first place to, dis, to 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 talk about any kind of energy transition has to be in the when with the issue of scale
1: right yeah yeah if you uh... I understand completely why you're stressing that first, and that's in in keeping with what we've been discussing about just how much much power is needed to sustain the modern way of life, let alone what we would like for the future. But I do think the, the concepts of power density and energy density are helpful, and especially with power density, people might not be familiar with. Sure. Well, and it's
2: one,
1: my book came out, Power Hungry, came out last April,
2: and since then I've given... I don't know dozens of, of lectures dozens of speeches around the country and and I've found that the issue of power density is the one that is perhaps the most effective in getting people to understand on a on a wholly different way in a wholly different way why power density matters and why this metric is so important. So power density is a uh, a measure of energy flow that can be harnessed from a given area, volume, or mass. So you have different ways to measure power density. Aerial power density, volumetric power density, or gravimetric power density. So uh, 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 an easy way to to discuss power density is is this way. Um, If you consider a wind turbine, and of course, the wind industry has been very effective at selling their brand of of subsidized uh, business, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and saying, "Oh, we're clean, we're, cre- we're clean, we're green," blah blah blah. We've heard that over and over. Fine. The power density uh, for an average wind turbine, and these numbers are easily found. The, the general agreement on this on this number. The power density of a, of a wind turbine is about one watt per square meter. Um, okay. Well, uh, then let's jump to the other extreme and look at nuclear. Well. Um, there are many ways to calculate nuclear, but uh, uh, I, I looked at the South Texas Project, which is a, a nuclear project, nuclear facility here in Texas, and the, I live in Austin. The city of Austin owns 16% of the South Texas Project. So I looked at the South Texas Project, and I said, okay, what's the power density on this, on this facility? Again, measuring it in watts. And I looked at the entire footprint of the South Texas project. I thought, well, I could just take the two reactors and the the, the critical infrastructure, but to get the most conservative number, I said, okay, let's look at the entire fenced area that the South Texas project, and that's what I did. It's roughly 19 square miles, and that's the lake and all the other huge fenced area there. Obviously, the critical infrastructure is a fraction of that, but nevertheless, 19 square miles. Using that 19 square miles and the uh, 2,700 megawatts of, of production from the South Texas project gives you a power density of about 56 watts per square meter. Okay? So let's take that 2,700 megawatts and say, okay, we know that's you can produce that from 19 square miles. That's an area roughly the size of the island of Manhattan. So if you wanted to produce that much, inner, that much power rather from wind, how much land area would you need? You would need a land area roughly the size of the state of Rhode Island, an area of roughly 900 square miles, to, to be able to produce that same 2,700 megawatts of power from the South Texas project. And if you wanted further to go into the biofuels scam, you wanted to produce that much power from corn ethanol, you would need an area about the size of West Virginia, or 21,000 square miles. And in that whole area, you would have no room for coal mines, roads, uh, uh, houses, transmission lines, or anything else. It would all have to be set aside for corn in order to meet the power density or in order to provide the, the fuel needed to provide the power density that you can get from 19 square miles at the South Texas project power density is critical because if you start with low power density you are working uh, at a complete disadvantage and you have to counteract that low power density with other inputs whether it's steel concrete manpower capital uh, land all of these things have to be used in order to counteract low power density
1: and that and that connects directly to the to the other imperative that we haven't discussed as much which is cost right i mean that's that's part of the, that's I assume the main reason why you care about having something that's very power dilute if if we call it that because of it's not just it's not even just as if we can buy a bunch of cheap land and it'll somehow generate power you're talking about massive usually concrete steel structures all right. sorts of investments that end up costing us more money well and, and that's it that's it that's it exactly. And, and 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 you can
2: get to the cost then by okay, we talked about power density. Energy density, well why is the power density low for, for ethanol or, or for biofuels? Because the energy density is low. The energy density of, of, of think about the energy density of grass. I was talking to a, a professor changing emails with an engineering professor at Texas A&M the other day, and he was talking about this. He said, well, imagine, you can think about power density and energy this this way. He said, look at herbivores, look at cows. They eat grass. Well, they have to eat all day in order to, to sustain themselves because they're eating a fuel source that has very low energy density, grass. Compare that to a lion who eats meat. He eats every once in a while because the meat that he consumes is very energy dense. It's the same exact kind of corollary in terms of that, that low energy density of plants then correlates to low power density for ethanol. The dilute energy density of the, the, uh, the kinetic energy of the wind then figures directly into the low power density of wind turbines. So the, the, you have that power density as a direct product of the low energy density. And then when you talk about cost, yes, exactly, are they making these wind turbines now 450 feet high and then therefore have to have huge amounts of concrete and steel and everything in the base around the, the wind turbine it's because they're having to counteract that very low energy density of the wind and to do so you have to come up with huge inputs of other materials that are in, increasingly costly such as steel, concrete, etc. That, that have big footprints. The the, the, the nut of all of this I think Alex is that the, the, the Deep green, the real environmental ethic, is small footprints, and and, and this is small is beautiful. That was, the book was written when I was a kid. E. F. Schumacher, small is beautiful, and that's why I thirty years ago I was anti nuclear. Today I'm adamantly pro nuclear. Why? Because it is small footprints. If you are deep green, if you are truly an environmentalist, you have to be
1: pro nuclear. Well, that that's. I find that I find that interesting that I have a I have a I think different view a little bit of what is the nature real sort of core of the environmentalist movement but I'll ask you in that uh, well, tell me, what is I'm, it? What do you think it is? I'm you know, well, well, a lot. Well, I think I'm it, think it, it <laughs> is. Well, you're the, you're the, <laughs> you're you're the star here. But, but in terms of, in terms of, I think the core of it is, is low impact. But then the question is, what is? Who's the ultimate beneficiary? And I think the idea of environmentalism is that human beings are not supposed to be the ultimate beneficiary. We're not. We're supposed to not have an effect on the environment. But it's the environment. Um, above and beyond human beings. So what you see with environmentalists time after time is that they want to preserve nature at human expense. They want to preserve nature from human beings. And and I think that connects to the issue of nuclear and hydro which I was going to ask you about. So I'll give a My own opinion quickly, and then ask you what your opinion is. What you see is that even if you throw away the whole global warming CO2 issue, environmentalists rapidly oppose nuclear power and hydropower, which are by far the cheapest, most effective, most proven forms of generating uh, CO2-free power. And yet, you would think, with all their global warming alarmist rhetoric, they would be they would be cheering for these things. But and if you look at why do they oppose them, well. If you look at why, say, James Cameron opposes hydroelectric dams, he says they're unnatural. They're inf- interfering with nature. We're imposing on nature. Yeah, and in a sense, they are. Or if you look at nuclear power, they'll say, yeah, it's, it's unnatural. We're not supposed to harness this kind of power. And, and the word unnatural comes up, and they'll talk about things like radiation. And if you break it down, it's None of it adds up. It's not true that it's not safe. And they have all sorts of fallacies. But there's a sort of basic view that it's wrong for man to tamper with nature, which is why going to solar panels and windmills, why ultimately they oppose those as well, which is why you see opposition in the Mojave Desert, why you see opposition in Cape Wind, because the fundamental idea that it's wrong for man to impact nature is an anti-energy idea. I didn't mean to go on that long, but that's... that's, oh, that's my well, that's fine. I mean, it's
2: interesting that you... Uh, I, I'm intrigued by how you put it, because if you take that then to the next... Uh, take that further, then, oh, well, if it's wrong for, for man or men or women or whoever to impact nature, well, then, why would you carefully breed one cow or one horse with your other best cow or best horse. Oh, well, we just we can't inter- we can't interfere with that. That would be interference. Well, then I mean you it, 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 this is you re- reduce it to absurdity very quickly when you think about that because oh, well then we don't want to breed the best plants for more productivity. That's interfering with nature. I mean, you know, it, you can reduce that argument very quickly to to one that shows just how extreme and how how frankly stupid the whole thing
1: is. But they do they do uh- certainly I I was not articulating a viewpoint that I agree with. It's one I think is profoundly wrong. And I think it's the proper view of nature is that nature is a means to human ends. So I love love nature. I love going outside. I love taking walks. I love going to the Grand Canyon. I love experiencing it. But I think of it as this is something that's great because it's great for humans. And the environmentalist view, if you look at the core Sierra Club type people who have the people who oppose nuclear power they believe that nature is intrinsically valuable above and beyond above and in contradiction to I should say its value to human life and that's why they'll choose let's say this you know the Chinook salmon or the snail darter over human beings and I think that's a really destructive outlook but it's it's at the heart of why they oppose nuclear but I'm I'm curious why do you think that they they oppose nuclear and they oppose hydro
2: well I mean, I could argue both sides of the hydro question, and that I think it, 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 the, the the power density of hydro is very, very low when you look at it on a on a simple watts per square meter consumed type of, type of basis. However, it is effectively lower or zero carbon, and it's renewable. And when you look at uh, a lot of developing countries, and now, and, and look at the growth of hydro over the last few decades, particularly in in Africa and elsewhere. You realize, well, for many countries, this is absolutely one of the best options, and um, and it is ex- extremely reliable. And once it's built, it's like nuclear; it's very low cost. So, uh, I, I can see the arguments on both sides. And I, I, uh, 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 in in the U.S., hydro dams aren't being built; they're being taken down. Um, so. And 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 I'm a paddler, so I understand some people who are in favor of rivers. They say, "Well, oh, we want to maintain wild rivers." Okay, well I, I see that. But at the same time, uh, the, the value and the importance of electricity is so high that for many countries, having hydro is just it, this is you have to you cannot leave the, the, uh, 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 an opportunity uh, such as that provided by hydro if you have uh, the right kind of river flow and everything. It's too great an opportunity to ignore. But I think that the the opposition to hydro and nuclear for a lot of the environmental groups, and I think it's uh, the, the ardent environmentalists. And I've been asked this question many times: well, Why is there this opposition? I think it has, there's a there's a there's a romanticism, and it goes back to your point about not interfering with nature. There's a romanticism in this type of thinking that oh, we're not worthy, and that we should we need to return to more harmonic or more more harmonious rather. Um, Relationship with nature, that we we humans are sinful, and we have sinned against nature, and we need to return back to the Garden of Eden, more the 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 idyllic kind of relationship where we have a lower impact, and we're not harming the the, the local land or the the local fish or the local whatever that and, and and that somehow if we went back to forty acres and a mule that 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 romantic era <laughs> would return, and we would be be happier, but that that romantic notion. Just fundamentally ignores the backbreaking labor and the incredible, the short life expectancies and everything else that came with that agrarian type lifestyle. But nevertheless, that that romantic notion uh, I think persists. Clearly persists.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And and uh, on that on that note, let's let's talk a little bit about the whole green energy because some environmentalists will say that they'll acknowledge that if we try to use solar, wind, ethanol, and other biofuels, that that would mean a radical reduction in um, in the number of human lives that could be sustained on the planet. But many people say that's not true. They say green energy can, in fact, be more practical. And you'll, you'll hear things from people like Al Gore who says, quote, enough sunlight falls on the surface of the earth every hour to provide energy for all the world for a year, unquote. Now, that is true, but he... He and others act as if this means that green energy is, is practical. So it would be great if you could just run through, let's say, solar, wind, and ethanol, which I know you have a particular distaste for, and talk about how these violate the four imperatives. And, and also, if you might add the issue of reliability, which which I think yeah, is is right. very much at the core uh, of their problems.
2: Sure. Well, I, I, I'm glad you brought up that number or that that quote from Gore because they— It lies at the very heart of uh, this point of of, of power density and so on. Okay, so, yes, he's right. Okay, well, every day, you know, all this much solar energy. Well, okay, fine. It's as though you've said, well, if if we just melted all the copper down in the world, we'd have a zillion, billion, million pennies. Okay, well, fine. (laughs) How do we do that? The problem is conversion, and that is, that, that is the ultimate issue. And, and uh, 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 let me I'll, I'll diverge here for a second, and maybe I'll, um, it sounds esoteric, but Einstein's great insight, the most famous equation in our culture is E equals mc squared. What did Einstein understand? E equals mc squared, what, that, that means energy and, and, and mass are interchangeable that we have an infinite amount, a nearly infinite amount of mass, we have, and if we can just convert that mass into energy, then, then we have infinite energy. Well, but that's the problem, that a turning all the energy that we have around us, that Einstein said everything around us is energy, it's, it may look like mass, but it's energy. All we have to do is just convert it into energy and find Well, that's the problem. And it's always been the issue. And it's been since the time of the cavemen to today, our effort has been trying to turn that energy around us into effective power. That was the story of the, of the harness and putting draft animals to the plow. What were what were humans trying to do? They were trying to turn, then, effectively, the energy that came in the form of, from the sun, of fodder, into the animal, into effective power to till the land. So, these ideas, oh, well, this much energy comes through, you know, flows off the wind, and we, if only we captured all that wind, we'd, you know, have enough electricity for everybody to have a, live in a house as big as Al Gore's. Okay, so fine. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, but that's an unrealistic assessment because it forgets the, the the key challenge, which is the conversion process of energy into useful power. And I don't, I know, I didn't exactly address your question. No, but that's,
1: I think, I think that's, I think that's a really good uh, first building block of the answer because if we're talking about the, the issue of conversion, I mean, we can look at nature as just matter and energy. So there's no issue of how much energy is around us in the world. There's tons of chemical energy. There's tons of energy from the sun. The issue is how do we convert it? So can you talk about the difficulties of converting so-called green energy, such as direct sunlight, the wind, and then uh, plant matter?
2: Sure. Well, let me start with the last one because that's one that I'm very familiar with and one that that, uh, uh, people say, oh, well, if we just converted all the – Plant matter and so on, then that would be fine. Well, I was—I I wrote a piece just recently and published it on Counterpunch, uh, uh, critiquing uh, Thomas Friedman's recent article about uh, biofuels. And I, in, in in looking at that, I talked to Tim Searchinger, who has done—he's at Princeton and has done a lot of work on biofuels. He did an estimate that even if we took—if—if if globally we took all of the wood, all of the plant materials, all of the food crops, and convert, and converted it all to our, our human use for energy, it would only provide about 30% of global energy needs. So he, he's saying you take all plant material on the surface of the earth... It would only provide 30% of what the, the energy needs of the, of the people on the planet. That gives you an idea of the low energy density of plant materials. And why is that? It's because plants only can convert about 2% of the solar energy that they receive into effective energy. And, then, and that's creating stems and leaves and, and roots and everything else. Well, then when you take those stems and leaves and roots and try and convert them into useful power you lose again. You lose a, a huge amount of that inner embedded energy uh, up, the, up the smokestack. So that process then of conversion is, is problematic. So you, you asked about the issue of reliability. Okay, well, let me just follow on that in terms of plant matter. Well, okay, so say we uh, in the United States decided we're just going to use biofuels grown from soybeans or corn or cellulosic ethanol or whatever. Well, what do you do when you have a drought? <laughs> Oh, well, you we've lost a third of our crop or a half of our crop. Okay, well, what do we do for our energy flows? Oh, well, we do without. Well, that's not so good. But the same analogy applies to this, the, 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 the energy that we get from the sun or the energy that we get from the wind. Talk, talk about wind for a second. In August, I live in Texas, the biggest wind energy state in the United States, roughly 10,000 megawatts of installed wind energy capacity, well, four days in August of this of, of 2010, Texas had record electric demand, and on those record days of, of and record uh, demand, that those days was something on the order of 65,000 megawatts of power. The wind energy generation capacity in the state amounted to one percent, two percent, one percent, and one percent of the total demand on those days. So the availability of wind to, on when power demand was highest was essentially the effective uh, availability was effectively zero. So, oh, oh, well, it's hot and it's 102 degrees in Austin and I want air conditioning or I want a cold beer and we're relying on wind. Oh, sorry, you can't have that. Not now. The wind's not blowing. Well, but I want it now. Oh, well, but I'm sorry. that You can't have it. Well, that doesn't work in a modern economy.
1: Yeah, and then and then solar, it's there's kind of a problem that it's not around at night, and then of course it's around intermittently during the day. I remember I was in Arizona earlier this year, and Arizona is, is supposedly just the panacea of solar, and if only we just put up, you know, hundreds of square miles of solar panels in Arizona and magically got these transmission lines, it would be great. And they were complaining that it had just been raining. I was just thinking, Wow, what if they actually tried this ridiculous scheme which would bankrupt us all and it just rained for a couple of days? That would be really rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they need rain there. <laughs>
2: uh, well, exactly, and 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 this points to the other issue, which is uh, that, and it is the key issue. It's the holy grail in the energy business, and has been the holy grail now for decades, which is energy storage. And <clears throat> there are some people that say, "Oh, well, we've we've figured out how to handle that, and we can we can resolve that, and and and." But in talking to material scientists and in talking to them seriously about where they're going in batteries and so on, the 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 discussion that I always hear is that that the the fundamental problem with batteries is that energy density issue—the amount of 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 uh, stored uh, heat uh, or chemical energy that you can have in a in a given area or, or volume or mass with with uh, energy—is is still very very low, and we've had. Um, Uh, To to explain that or to give you an example, gasoline has 80 times the energy density of the best lithium-ion batteries. And and and, and batteries have improved since the time of Edison to today, but you just figure an 80-fold difference in the energy density between gasoline and lithium-ion batteries, that's why we use gasoline.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, gas, it's just its just really remarkable how much energy is stored chemically in gasoline versus something like a battery. And, and in your, your book and in other places I've seen, there are just so many brilliant quotes from the beginning of the 20th century where they say batteries are going to take over gasoline. Batteries are the, um, you know, they're the wave of the future. And even during the time uh, of Edison, people were saying to Henry Ford, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't use gasoline use batteries and in fact Edison I believe was the one who told Ford look you ha- you have to use gasoline it works much better than a battery does and yet a hundred years later and I still have people coming to me and saying wow batteries are the wave of the future wouldn't it be cool if the car were electric well yeah except for the energy density uh, well, <laughs> yeah if you have a really long extension cord they work great <laughs> yeah so so um we only have a little bit of time left, so I want to I want to move on to the one issue that I think you're most, for me famous for, um, and for others notorious for, and that is the issue of energy independence. and And I remember the first time I became exposed to you because uh, I I. I was against this idea of energy independence, but I hadn't thought it through particularly carefully. But I knew there was something off with this. And my boss comes into my office and he hands me this book. And it says, Gusher of Lies, The Dangerous Delusions of Energy Independence. And I just lit up like a Christmas tree. I thought, wow, someone is writing criticizing energy independence. Where did this guy get the guts? And how did he come to this conclusion? So I'm curious, how did you, uh, on your own journey, come to the idea that energy independence is a bogus idea?
2: Well, uh, that's an interesting question. I haven't, haven't really thought of it um, until you've asked it. I, I, I think it was in, in about 2005 when I started looking at the the corn ethanol scam. And talking to friends of mine, Tad Pachek, who's now at the University of Texas here in Austin, um, who was very savvy on ethanol and really took the time to explain to me about the Enron accounting that was being used by the ethanol uh, industry to justify their subsidies and so on. And when I looked at ethanol and and the ethanol scam, one of the things they kept saying was energy independence. We need this for energy independence. And so I began looking at it and thinking, okay, well, what does that mean? And what are they they implying uh, throughout their whole effort to justify their subsidies? And it was that, oh, well, foreign oil is bad. Okay, well, so I started looking at oil imports, and I found that U.S. has been a net crude oil importer, and this is Energy Information Administration numbers, it's not my data, that the U.S. has been a net crude oil importer essentially every year since 1913, five years after Henry Ford introduced the, the Model T. So I, I, I looked at that and I thought, well, wait a minute. We've been an oil importer for a century, and a big one and we're the world's single biggest energy producer and the world's single biggest energy consumer. We produce nearly 75% of all the energy that we consume. Yeah, we import a lot of oil, but we pay for that oil. We, it, it, as with any other article of trade, you get something, and you in back in return, rather, you give them money. And whoever the, the seller is, they get your money, and they do something else with it. And as a buyer, you get that good or service, and then you enjoy it but it, there was something fundamentally wrong the more I thought about it with the entire concept and i and I looked at the history of it and the and how long we've been hearing this uh this phrase and how popular it was and and it was it, and i i I'm a contrarian and I, as a journalist i'm paid to be skeptical, and I thought, how is it that especially uh, and the book was published in two thousand and eight between really between two thousand and four and two thousand and eight that whole four year time period you had a whole lot of people on both sides of the, or all sides, rather, of the political spectrum, saying energy independence. And I thought, well, this is the most hackneyed phrase in American politics, and we're hearing it over and over, and yet it means nothing. And so it, it really was—it uh, was gratifying to see, you know, a lot, a lot of people attack me and didn't like me. Well, that's fine. You can't be friends with everybody. But I, 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 I hope I've affected that discussion a little bit because it, it, our, our, our vocabulary, our political discussion, is so. Impoverished, and yet we continue to use these silly phrases without any understanding of what they mean. So, uh, I've given you a windy answer there, but uh, uh, you asked me a question I hadn't hadn't really given much thought to. Well,
1: no, that's 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 a that's a great answer, and and I, I find it remarkable the extent to which people are willing to equate trade which is a long-known and a beautiful phenomenon of exchanging value for value for mutual benefit, of equating that with dependence, which at its core is a real helplessness. Like, I can't – I'm helpless. And people think of something like, well, we buy all this oil – from Saudi Arabia. Now, there are complications with that. And and I don't think either of us thinks it's a great thing that Saudi Arabia is in the shape that it's in. But nevertheless, people have this idea. And I think Bill Clinton says, oh, I actually have this quote right here. Think of the instability and impotence you feel knowing that every day we have to have a lifeline from places half a world away that could cut us off in a minute. And I think you do a good job of pointing out that with the Middle East People think, even though it's, it's an imperfect situation, and, and you've written a lot about what's wrong with it, I've written some in my own work, but that's a completely wrong view of, of the kind of precariousness of our situation.
2: Well, yeah, and, and it is always in, intriguing to have Bill Clinton talk about impotence, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the issue of, uh, it, remember, it's not just reliance or impotence or anything else, uh, or, or um, uh, uh, oh, we're being held hostage or whatever, the other one is addiction. Which in in, a, in America's love of the self help culture and everything else, addiction. Oh man, that oh the Saudis are just the drug pushers and uh, they've got a needle and they're they're hiding near the schoolyard and, and here just the first taste is free and, and it, it, but it, <laughs> and, and, and who is the one who uses this most famously first George George it's Bush George, George W. Bush. We're addicted to oil. Well, I'm not addicted. I'm I've I'm, used just the right amount in and it, and, uh, <laughs> or, or that we waste it. Or that we're, we're, we're wasting it. Well, I don't, my, my pat response it's glib, yeah, but I don't waste any oil. I use just the right amount. In fact, I don't waste any energy. I use just the right amount every time. I'm sure someone else wastes it, but I use just the right amount. But, but back to the addiction thing, it's, I, I, we're not addicted to oil. We're not addicted to coal. We're addicted to prosperity. And, and, and if you put it in those terms, then it, it turns that whole argument upside down pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, and it's it's not an addiction. It's the antithesis of addiction, which is long term, which is long term prosperity and happiness. Whereas addiction is the idea of some short term high uh, followed by long term suffering. Whereas I mean, what, what we do when we use oil and hydrocarbons is benefit our lives over the long term. Now, yeah. one more well, The only suffering I have is
2: that my beer isn't quite cold enough. <laughs> <laughs> just, right, exactly. You put it well, that's good. I like that. You're right, that addiction has, is followed by some suffering or some physical ailment. Well, no, the use of hydrocarbons in general and, and more energy and power has led to incredible increases in health and our ability, our entire. Think about a hospital without electric power. Um, it doesn't work very well.
1: Yeah. And, and um, on that addiction tip, uh, anyone who's, who's listening to this, I have a, a recent article on Fox News called The Six Myths About Oil. And myth number one is that we're addicted to oil. And then the rest of it is devoted to refuting some of these other myths. But I think this, the addiction metaphor is really apt to the way that people look not only at energy, but at capitalism. So if you look at the socialist critiques of capitalism, going back to certainly Marx, there's this idea that it inevitably sows the seeds of its own destruction. That's that's almost verbatim uh, from Marx. And during the 20th century, what they said is capitalism will fail to produce. It looks like it produces, but it, it doesn't really produce. And if we have socialism, that'll really produce. And then it turns out capitalism produced and socialism killed everyone So in the form of communism primarily and Nazism. So then what did they say? Well, they said, oh, okay, yeah, we admit that capitalism produced, but it's going to stop producing. It's, quote, unsustainable. So even though all of our evidence is that, in fact, man devises greater and greater ways of creating more and more wealth, so it's not only sustainable but ever improvable, that somehow, for some reason, it's going to run out. And there's a lot of interesting, I think, philosophical threads in this, including the idea uh, of original sin and, and other relevant ideas, but I find it interesting that addiction really captures the view of, of not only energy, but capitalism that's persisted for 200 years, and yet the anti-capitalist, anti-energy people keep claiming that the end is near. And, and In my view, and I think the implication of your book, is the end is only near if we deprive ourselves of the freedom to harness the unlimited potential energy from nature.
2: Well, it's it's a, I, I, I like what you're I like your train of thought here because I think it's an important one and it's one that I mean, put it in those terms and, and uh, I'm not as schooled in Marx and, and that school of thought as you are but uh, uh, yeah I I think that and, and and it's interesting that you put it that way and it makes me think that a lot of the discussion about peak oil is of the same kind of uh, catastrophic mindset. The, the peak oil and global warming mindsets are very similar, and I'm not here to argue either side of either issue. I can argue both sides equally well, I think, and, and discuss them equally and, and see the supporting arguments for both. But both ignore the, as uh, Julian Simon put it, the, the ultimate resource, which is human ingenuity. And and this idea, oh, well, peak oil, okay, it's going to lead to catastrophe. Well, yeah, except it forgets the idea that, that that price and technology are an incredibly powerful combination in finding new resources of whatever kind. And this was the, the source of the great bet between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich, that in fact over time commodities will get cheaper, no, not more expensive. And and further, this argument about peak oil is assumes that our ability to convert energy into useful power will stay flat. Well, it won't. Yes, we may hit peak oil and the globe may, may ultimately... Get to the point where, or oil production globally may not rise above what we are now—85, 86 million barrels a day. Well, if that's the case, we're going to get a lot better at converting that 85 or 86 million barrels of oil per day into enough power to provide the level of of, of transportation and other services that we get from it. So. Uh, it, it's part of the reason why I'm optimistic going forward and, 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 and why I just reject the catastrophist viewpoint, because uh, I think it's fundamentally one that is pessimistic, one that ignores human ingenuity.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, Simon's point about the ultimate the ultimate resource being the human mind. This is also a major theme of Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. One one aspect of this whole issue that it's I think not often enough applied to is even the concept of catastrophe. Like what is a catastrophe? Well, is Haiti's earthquake a catastrophe? Well, if it happened in the United States, it wouldn't have been a catastrophe. So catastrophe is a, is a term that's relative. It, de- it depends on the state of technology and the state of ingenuity. Or take something like a drought. Well, I, I live in Southern California. That's a drought. Right? In a different time of history, this would be disastrous, or Las Vegas. And yet, these are two of the most desirable places on Earth. So, it's really the ultimate resource that even determines the impact of climate on human life. It's not just that, well, Mother Nature by default gives us some good climate, which she doesn't. She gives us a very variable and often dangerous climate. And then, if it changes, oh, that's a disaster. The key variable is can the human mind adapt to and change nature in order to? In order to make life livable on the planet, and the evidence is, human beings are amazing at doing that. My only source of potential pessimism is there's a trend of non-freedom in our ability to do that, and that's that's what I find ominous. Uh, But to to start wrapping up, I'm definitely extremely grateful to you for your for your work in this. I think Gusher of Lies is a must-read, and Power Hungry are must-reads. I've learned. Enormous amounts. They're they're full of facts. They're full of interesting arguments, and it's a great way to get started in the energy debate. So, uh, Robert, tell us where we can learn more about your work besides those two books.
2: Well, um, those books are generally available everywhere but Walmart. Um, so, <laughs> I buy them both. Um, <laughs> they make uh, you don't have to read it. You just have to buy it. Um, I I generally post everything that I write on uh, my website robertbryce.com um I uh, uh and I'm uh, I'm continuing to work for the Manhattan Institute so I'm I'm working on papers for them but uh um yeah I, I'm having a great time and I I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to have this discussion because I, I I I appreciate your your viewpoint on 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 these issues because uh um, you, you're coming at it from a different different kind of mindset different focus than, than I have but I think it's a, it's a lot of commonality and uh, it's intriguing to discuss
1: yeah well thank you so much for being on the program and hopefully we'll have you on again sometime be happy to do it Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you here's Alex Epstein Thanks again to Robert Bryce. Very fun and interesting interview. I hope you got a lot out of it. Uh, for me, the three takeaways from the interview were, I would say one, that cheap, concentrated, large-scale power, like the kind we get from coal, oil, nuclear, natural gas, etc., is essential for human life and happiness. Basically, the more power we have, all things being equal, the more life we have. The number two takeaway I had was that the idea that so-called green energy, like solar, wind, and ethanol, can provide that power is a myth. And then the third takeaway was the idea of energy independence is anti-trade and therefore anti-prosperity. Now, there's a lot more to say about all these issues, and once again, let me recommend Gusher of Lies and Power Hungry as resources, but I just want to make two additional points right now that hopefully you'll find helpful. The first is that being a true advocate of large-scale energy and power means being an advocate of freedom first and foremost. Let me explain that. Often people think that if you defend oil and criticize solar panels, as I do and as Robert Bryce does, you're somehow saying that the government, should be pro-oil and anti-solar panels. But that's not it at all. The government, in my view at least, shouldn't be pro or anti any kind of fuel. It should respect the right of energy companies to own property and to harness whatever kind of energy they judge best. And in such an environment, the best energy technologies will win out. The reason to praise oil is because oil, for a century and a half, has proven incredibly valuable to human life. The reason to criticize solar is that for most purposes, it's proven not valuable, and it's taken a lot of taxpayer money in various schemes and scams. But if someone can figure out a way to overcome all the difficulties of harnessing large-scale solar, more power to them, so long as they don't do it by taking my money or your money. So being pro-energy means being pro-freedom, pro-trade, and as a consequence of that, pro-competition. Now, the second idea I want to put forward is that even though energy independence, that idea, is justified as essential to national security, it is in fact anti-security. I know this is a controversial point on my part, but it's one I made in my recent Fox News essay, The Six Myths About Oil, and I want to quote a little of that essay here. Quote, Iran and Saudi Arabia use ill-gotten profits to spread totalitarian Islamic ideology around the world and terrorize us with their minions. This, however, in no way justifies any attempt at energy independence, that is, renouncing international trade and energy, including the two-thirds of our oil we buy on the international market. If, say, Iran's money is the problem, then the solution is to cut off Iran's money directly, for example, by organizing a global economic boycott against Iranian oil, not foreign oil. Why on earth should we give up two-thirds of the oil we need, an incalculable economic sacrifice? It is self-sacrificial and xenophobic to try to end our reliance on foreign oil as such and retreat into some kind of oil subsistence farm in the hopes that this would someday lower Iran's oil revenues. This is especially dubious given skyrocketing oil demand from India and China. It is an undeniable fact that Iran was an active, blossoming sponsor of terrorism when oil was at $10 and $20 a barrel, as was Saudi Arabia. Can anyone possibly believe that focusing on lowering oil prices over a period of decades would accomplish anything besides giving Iran more time to develop nukes while undermining America's economy and military? And that's the end of the quote. So the idea here is that foreign policy problems are very real. I want to stress that, and they should be taken seriously. But the solution is not to try to become an energy subsistence form. And if you read Gusher of Lies you'll see just how interconnected the global economy is, not just in terms of oil, but in terms of all the materials and inputs that are crucial for all kinds of energy. In the appendix of the book, he has a list of what materials we import from where and what their uses are, and this is really cool. So here are some of them, and many of them we import 100%. I'll tell you afterward what they're used for, uh, and if I mispronounce any of them, I apologize. Some of them are a little bit of a mouthful for non-chemists. So here are some of the materials that we import 100% of. Indium, manganese, strontium, yttrium, vanadium, bauxite and alumina, columbium, fluorspar, graphite, mica, quartz crystal, rare earths, rubidium, thallium, thorium. All of those are 100% imported. Now these, all of the following, are at least 80%. Gallium, platinum, bismuth, tin, antimony diamond, titanium, palladium, tantalum. So what are these things used for? Well, here are just some of the uses. And think about how this applies to every kind of energy and really to all of our prosperity. Solar cells, wind turbines. So forget about green energy being so-called energy independent. Jet engines, metalworking equipment, catalytic converters, electronics, drilling machinery and drill bits, airplanes, storage batteries, Forget about electric cars being energy independent, semiconductors, superconductors, LEDs, integrated circuits, lasers, optical lenses, radiation detection equipment, steel making, combustion equipment, aluminum, nuclear fuel, TVs, electronic displays, pesticides, fertilizers, preservatives, and fireproofing. So the benefits of international trade are absolutely immense. The reason why we import these things is because it is far more beneficial, far, uh, far cheaper To do so, we need to have a foreign policy that enables citizens to maximize these kinds of benefits while also protecting our security. And That's not a trivial task, but it is a necessary one that has to be taken seriously, not just evaded with slogans like energy independence, which ultimately don't really amount to anything. And on that note, let me give you some reading and listening recommendations if you're interested in learning more about the issues we discussed today. And I'll be linking to all of these on my Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. First, of course, check out Gusher of Lies and Power Hungry by Robert Bryce. Second, I've linked to the article he mentioned on ethanol in today's show. Third, check out The Six Myths About Oil by me, which covers both green energy and energy independence. And finally, for those of you who want extra credit or are just really interested in the foreign policy angle of what we discussed today, I'm linking to my course, The Triumph and Tragedy of the Oil Industry, which has an in-depth discussion of the history of our petroleum foreign policy in the Middle East and a discussion of how these problems could have been averted. Also, it discusses what needs to be done differently today. Now, that course takes a while to get through. It's over four hours and it actually sells for $60. But uh, for you guys, I offer it free to anyone who subscribes to my free newsletter, which is called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Energy. And you can get that newsletter by just uh, emailing me at alex, at alexepstein.com, subject subscribe. And again, you can find all of this information at facebook.com slash energy. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something. And if you didn't think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it in whatever way you can. This is the future of energy in our country we're talking about. So use Facebook, use Twitter, use email, use phone calls, use smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com or contact me on Facebook. And to subscribe to this podcast, go to iTunes. Again, to subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, email me at alex at alexepstein.com, subject subscribe. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting guest and topic, which I will announce in the next newsletter. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour.
2: Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.